and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is political analyst and handicapper Charlie Cook, editor and publisher of the Cook Political Report, and a spring fellow at the Institute of Politics here at Harvard. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I think they've already lied to us. They told us this was spring. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, Nemo is bearing down on us now, but we appreciate you coming and, and getting through the snow. Um, you've been a political forecaster for several decades now, and that can be a difficult game. We recently saw Dick Morris get released from Fox News for some uh, less than accurate uh, predictions. Uh, what separates you from the rest of the field? What What's the trick to it? Well, there, you know, I, I kind of separate people who are uh, trying to be objective political analysts and cheerleaders. And, you know, Dick Morris, uh, I would put more as a cheerleader. I mean, clearly there was an outcome that he wanted to see happen, and he desperately wished for that to happen, and it didn't so much. And a lot of times, you know, they desperately want something to happen, and it does happen, and they look smart. But really, it's, it's more like cheerleading. Um, I started my business uh, uh, 28 years ago. I had my start in Democratic Party politics, but I found myself in the early 1980s uh, splitting my ticket and voting for Republicans almost 40 percent of the time. And I found my and and I wasn't becoming a Republican. I was just becoming a swing voter, and I loved politics and liked being around it. So I was trying to think how can I stay in and around politics without working for either side. And so I came up with a, an idea of, of a, a newsletter that would be aimed uh, initially at. Uh, political action committees and lobbyists and other people that had a professional interest in needing to know, you know, what was going to go on in a lot of these campaigns, uh, and then broaden out to to people that just like politics in general. Uh, so I took my $6,000 out of the Senate Retirement Fund, and um, my father-in-law co-signed a banknote for 10000 and I started a business. And for any of you thinking about starting businesses, I suggest capitalization a little bit more than $16,000. But anyway, it struggled for five, six years, and then the early 90s kind of took off. But there are other people that do what I do. Stu Rothenberg is editor of the, of the Rothenberg Political Report, and he's a columnist for Roll Call newspaper on Capitol Hill, actually, which is where I used to write a column, and I'm at National Journal Magazine. But Stu and I are, are, are we're direct competitors and very, very close friends. And um, frankly, I read his stuff very closely. He reads mine very closely. And when we disagree, I, I look, you know, I, I look closely at what I'm, I'm saying because there's a 50-50 chance that Stu's right and I'm wrong. And then you get into other folks. I mean, there are a lot of really bright people in the broader field go out to, you know, Chuck Todd uh, at NBC is a dear friend, and he's very, very, very good. Um, John King, who is one of the, our, our visiting fellows at CNN, um, he's he's very, very, very good. Dan Baltz at the Washington Post. I mean, there, there are quite a few people that are sort of that are in the business of analyzing politics that are that are they're very 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 good uh, and then you get into more the the cheerleaders types so uh, Nate Silver became something of a pseudo celebrity over the la- over the 2008 and 2012 elections uh, his focus is really on polling and straight numbers is that all there is to the game of political analysis, or is there more that people should be taking into consideration? Well, I, I think the the money ball analogy does fit, 
where there's a science and there's an art. And to me, the sweet spot is when you bleed, blend both. Now, most of us in the business come up more on the art side. You know, we know election history. We've watched it for a long time. We've seen virtually any kind of situation you can imagine six, seven, eight times and knows how, know how it usually ends up. Uh, so that's one side of the business. Nate's from a different one. And um, he is a very, very bright guy. He has a terrific statistical toolkit that I don't have. And, and frankly, even though Stu's, uh, Rothenberg is a PhD, you know, it's not really his toolkit either. And, and I think um, Nate is intellectually very honest and comes at it with fresh eyes. And, you know, he'd be the first to tell you that before uh, 2005 or six, he really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to politics. Um, but um, I check 538.com every single day. And, um, you know, I, I think I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And I think he does a very, very good job. You know, if I had to criticize him, and I'm hesitant to do so because he— uh, devoted four or five pages of his book to uh, how the Cook Political R Report operates and was very complimentary. And so I, I, I certainly want to be nothing but complimentary. I think sometimes, though, he tries to quantify the unquantifiable. I mean, that some things aren't meant to be quantified, and you intuition does come into play. And, and actually, he says that in the book. And, and when he points out that uh, um, our house editor, David Wasserman, um, I mean, our base is we start off with interviewing the candidates, spending 45 minutes or an hour uh, with each of the non-incumbent candidates that come through, and we have several hundred come through in a cycle, and sort of talk about their background, talk about their campaign, why they think, you know, and we, we're sort of br trying to bring in a lot. We're looking, yes, we're looking at the polling data. Yes, we're looking at the election statistics in that state or district. You know, we're looking at the money. We're looking at, but we try to kind of blend uh, as much as we can. So I would say Nate, look, Nate does a fabulous job looking at just in terms of history is a good way of looking at it. Look at the polling is good. But we try to kind of blend it together and marry the art and the science together. So you mentioned a little bit of it there. But what, what do you look at when you're approaching any given race? What are, what are the kind of myriad issues that well, the, come up? The baseline, what you start off with is just look at the, the voting history of that state or district. I mean, because there are some places where... It would take a truly extraordinary event for either a Democrat to win in that state or district or a Republican to win in that state or district. And at that point, you look and say, is there anything extraordinary here that would make this behave differently than the norm? And so uh, that's the first thing. And, and then then you start kind of building from there. Um, does this is this candidate, do they seem to know what they're doing? Are they articulate? Are they conversant on the issues? Are they putting together what seems to be a technological, you know, technically proficient campaign? Um, do they have any money, or is their money going to be spent on their behalf coming from someplace? And just kind of look at it in a multifaceted way, and and uh, based on judgment of having done this for a long time, we make assessments, and then as things go, I mean, early on in the uh, um, when uh, in 2009, uh, when Scott Brown was running for the U.S. Senate here in Massachusetts against Martha Coakley, 
you know, obviously when it started off, it looked solid Democratic. And then you started seeing Coakley's campaign was not coming together and she was getting more overconfident. And Scott Brown's campaign started, you could tell it was really firing on all eight cylinders. And there was an environment at the time, President Obama's numbers, even in Massachusetts, weren't looking as good as they do now or did before. You know, and, and we ended up having that in the toss-up category uh, by election day. But it took, you know, there were a lot of, of changes along the way to get there because it was having to overcome, um, you know, an enormous amount of, 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 uh, of history. I mean, it's very, very hard for a Republican to win a federal race statewide in the state of Massachusetts. You know, by the same token, it's very, very hard for a, a Democrat to win statewide in, you know, Utah or Wyoming or Idaho or some of these places as well. Uh, federal races, I emphasize, because state issues, state state elections are less nationalized and they tend to, to float on their own local indigenous issues. And it's not unusual, for example, here in Massachusetts to have a Republican governor. Uh, Republican U.S. Senator, that's rare. Uh, you know, it's not that unusual for some of these Mountain West conservative states to occasionally have Democratic governors. Uh, sometimes voters are looking for balance. You know, the legislature is entirely of one party, and so they kind of like to, to have a governor sometimes of the opposite party just to, you know, uh, uh, you know, balance things out. So there are some things that are easily quantifiable, like you know, how much money a campaign has, how many ads they have running. Uh, and I, see, I seem to see a lot of the uh, analysis goes on those types of things. But it seems like there's a lot of importance put by campaigns on field operations, uh, grassroots organizing, that kind of thing. How does an analyst look and, and measure that? Measuring organization is extraordinarily difficult, darn near impossible. And during this last presidential race, you know, we were desperate. I mean, we knew that the Obama organization was going to be better than the Romney organization. But how much better? Two times, five times, ten times? I mean, you know, I mean, there, and, and the only metric that we could come up with, and this is a, a very crude one, was uh, David Wasserman, our house editor, came up with the idea, how many field offices each one had in swing states? And now, all field offices aren't equal and equally effective. And I mean, it was by any standard a very crude measurement. But the Obama campaign had uh, overall in the swing states uh, better than twice as many field field offices as the the Romney campaign, and um, you know it was that was as good as we could do. But that's that's one of the least quantifiable things in politics. Uh, you can you can do and and obviously if a campaign wanted to build up an image of having a great opportunity mean, they could open up a you know a closet someplace and call it a field office and you know claim it but uh, uh, it, it's the, that was about as seat of the pants as 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 we ever get. So uh, perhaps as a result of that uh, organizing, the Democrats did pretty well in 2012, uh, but they weren't. They didn't do well enough to take back the House. Now, uh, there's been a lot of conversation lately about uh, uh, gerrymandering 
possibly being a part of that. Uh, I think I read one statistics that um, Democrats across the country won something uh, in the to the tune of 1.4, 1.7 million votes more House Democrats uh, yep. than Republican House candidates. Um, yet the Democrats came around came about with 201 seats to the Republicans 234. Is that just something that Democrats are just going to have to accept until the 2010 or 2020 census or? Well, first, I, you, you, you touched on um, the controversy of whether it's gerrymandering or gerrymandering after, what was it, Governor Elbridge Gary of here in Massachusetts and, and uh, I don't know that anybody has decided for, you know, what, what, what is the appropriate way. Um, it would be very, very difficult for Democrats to win a majority of the House that, uh, under these lines. I mean, if Republicans would have to, to screw up an extraordinary degree. I mean, Republicans benefited uh, 2010. They had a terrific election here. And they won, uh, uh, you know, an enormous number of governorships, of state legislative seats. And as a result, in 2011, they were in charge of drawing the lines most states, most states, and and did so very artfully, and um, and protected protected themselves extremely well. Now, certainly, there are states where Democrats. Uh, um, did the same thing to Republicans like Illinois, and then there are states like North Carolina where Republicans did to Democrats, but Republicans were in the position to do it in a lot more places than Democrats. Um, right now, Republicans, 94% of the Republican seats right now are districts that Romney carry. 96% of the districts that Democrats carry are Obama districts. So that there are very, very few about a dozen and a half fish out of water. That is, Republicans sitting in what ought to be a Democratic district or vice versa. And so there's just not a lot of elasticity in the House right now that the House is sort of sorted out. I mean, right now, if God were going to allocate seats based on where these lines are drawn, they're pretty darn close to where they'd be. Um, and that's why uh, the 2020 election will be huge because those will be the governorships, the vast majority of governorships are up during uh, uh, the off presidential years. So that 2018 year uh, will be the one that will be when a lot of the legislatures and governors are elected that will be in place in 2021, which is when the maps are drawn. And um, so it's, it's, you know, maybe 20% chance of Democrats getting the House back this decade, but it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty slim. So you've also written that uh, the Republicans have something of an image problem um, based on what you call exotic candidates, uh, Sharon Angle and Todd Akin, I think, were two examples. Um, a, there seems to have been something of a kind of a civil war within the party recently between the establishment um, and uh, more the Tea Party base who are, you know, building up those kinds of candidates. How can the party kind of turn that, turn the page on that, and move forward? Is it really a destructive force? Well, it, it is because Republicans. Um, there was a panel the other night uh, in the Kennedy Forum on the future of the Republican Party, and and several of the six Republicans on the panel, um, and several that that there's nothing wrong with being very very conservative, but 
if you are projecting an image of being intolerant, if you're projecting an image of not being welcoming to uh, minority voters, for example, if you're projecting, uh, if you're emphasizing issues that are almost designed to push away younger voters, uh, you're going to have a real problem. And, and, and the thing is, you could, and, you know, I think part of the face of the Tea Party movement became angry. Uh, rather than upbeat and hopeful. And um, I realize this is generations ago, but um, when Hubert Humphrey was running for president, he was sort of nicknamed the happy warrior because he was always upbeat and ebullient. Jack Kemp on the Republican side was always upbeat and positive. Uh, Reagan, when he was campaigning, it was a positive vision, that sort of thing. I mean, you could you could be angry and dark, or you could be positive, welcoming. A friend of mine, Mark Shields, who's a, um, a, a columnist for the Washington Post, uh, he likes to say that uh, any movement that spends more time trying to drive out heretics than attract converts is in d- big trouble. And I think that's really, really true. And and I think Republic, a lot of conservatives were trying to push people out of the party, and, um, and rather than be welcoming and trying to attract new people. And so I think Republicans need to do a lot of real soul searching about the the future of the party. And I don't think they have to change their philosophy so much. Although I think immigration is the one issue where they 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 really need to do make some substantive changes and appear to be. Uh, headed that general direction. But for the most part, it's cool down the rhetoric, tone it down, try to be a little warmer, try to approach things in a warmer way rather than a colder way, um, and, and, and look at the future and look at young voters and say, we're, you know, you look at this last presidential election, whether you're looking at the presidential numbers or congressional, and basically voters over 45 and older uh, voted for Romney and congressional Republicans and 44 and younger uh, voted for Obama and Democrats. And um, I just turned 59 years of age recently. Uh, you know, your generation, you're the future, and we're kind of the pre-dead. And Republicans did really well with the pre-dead, and Democrats and Obama did really well with the future. And, um, you know, over time, that's kind of a losing formula. And so Republicans really need to make some changes. Well, Charlie Cook, thanks you so much for being on PolicyCast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.